and thought there were some interesting things in there that I ought to take a look at. And uh, I said, sounded good, I would do that. And then I promptly forgot about it. And uh, yesterday afternoon, she brought it up again and said that Esther sure was interesting. So I began studying yesterday afternoon on it and last night and began to make some very interesting connections. However, we're not going there now. Let's go instead to the book of Daniel, and I want to begin in chapter 8. Now, you may recall in the series on Babylon, we went through, I guess, really all of Daniel. Uh, Some parts of it, I think, are clearer than they used to be. Some parts are still fairly muddy. Uh, But I made some comments in going through Daniel 8 that I think seemed at that time, and perhaps even more so now, are looking like they were correct, and perhaps we're getting more corroboration as time goes on, and maybe before we're done today we'll begin to see even more. So I want to pick it up here and preface what I have to say with this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, or Belshazzar it should be, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So he had had a vision before, and here was an additional one. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw, that I was at Shushan the palace, which is in the province of Elam. Now, he was not at Shushan, He was only taken there in vision, so that in the dream or the vision, that was the setting, was Shushan the palace. Now, I find it quite interesting that Shushan was the Medo-Persian capital. Remember, they had destroyed Babylon and taken it captive a few years prior to this, and now Darius the Mede was ruling, and I guess, well, let's see, this was King Belshazzar, so a little later. Uh, But the Medo-Persian Empire was in charge. Now, I think I mentioned at the time, Shushan is east of the Tigris drainage, or actually in the Tigris drainage, but east of the Tigris River. On a modern-day map, Iraq and Iran have a common border Uh, along or just east of the Euphrates-Tigris drainages. Babylon is on today, the Iraqi side of the border, and Shushan is in Iran. Now, this can prove very interesting as we go on. So he was taken, let's put it in modern parlance, he was taken to Iraq, I mean to Iran, excuse me right along the Iraqi border. So, he may have been in Iran, but he could probably look carefully and he might look over into Iraq. It's, they're pretty close together right there. It was in the province of Elam, which was around at that time uh, to the east side of Turkey and even around to the north side of Turkey uh, and in the area today of Iran and Iraq. So I was by the river Uli, which is a tributary of the Tigris. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. 
So here's a two-horned ram. And the two horns were high, signifying power, signifying importance, as opposed to being short horns. But one was higher than the other. One was more prominent than the other. You may have seen animals where one side of the antlers or horns were in, out of balance. One's higher than the other. That's the way this one was. And the higher came up last. Wasn't the first to be dealt with. And it was bigger and stronger. Now I saw the ram pushing. Gives the directions. Westward and northward and southward. This ram was not pushing eastward. I think that this is significant because we're going to see in a little while a change in which direction an animal is pushing. Now, if this ram is set in the Middle East, in the Medo-Persian area, and this end-time prophecy projected Daniel to the palace at Shushan, that means that this prophecy very likely has to do with that area today. Because Daniel is, by far and away, as much, as much or more of an end-time prophecy than any other. So I think it's significant that the setting of this vision was in Iran. Okay? Now, if you were a ram in Iraq, Iran, two horns, which direction would you be pushing? Now, let's consider the geopolitical scenario today. We have Iraq and we have Iran, both hotbeds of terrorism. Which directions are they pushing? They are pushing first westward. It's interesting that here, westward is mentioned first. Their primary bone of contention is with this satanic system in America today and Britain. Western, I mean Israel, basically. But the U.S. and Britain, and particularly the U.S., are the leaders of Israel today. Ishmael has always, ever since ancient times, had a bone to pick with Israel. They're half-brothers. We are half-brothers. And there's enmity in the family. Peace cannot be had. And in fact, they will prevail. Didn't it say in the prophecies about Jacob? Uh, not Jacob, but uh, Isaac and Ishmael. All right. So this ram pushes west. Let's presume for the moment that that's toward us. Okay? And northward. They're also pushing northward. Toward what? Toward Europe. Uh, right now, the common market and Turkey are in negotiations to let Turkey into the European common market. And Turkey is primarily an Islamic nation. So they're pushing their influence northward as well. And southward. Who is south of them that they don't like? Israel, the Jews. 
Now, they're not pushing to the east. The east contains a lot of Islamic peoples. It contains a lot of Buddhists and Shintoists and various other religions. But they're not the object of Islamic hate in the same way that Brother Isaac is. Just not. Now, we did have some bombings, terrorist bombings in Bali in this past week. Killed some people. Uh, and those are more local issues. They have to do with the politics of the area and with those who are not Islamic or who are different tribes of Islam, just like we have the Sunnis and the Shiites in Iraq who fight each other when they aren't fighting us. But their primary goal and objective, that is of all Islam, is not to the east. It is westward first, northward secondarily, and southward thirdly. So that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now, would you look upon Iraq and Iran just off the cuff as great and powerful today? Not if you're thinking in terms of military might, but that is not the only kind of power there is by any means. Oil gives power. Oil gives riches. Oil gives you great uh, leverage in international politics. It's a very strong factor in terms of power and is getting more so day by day as the oil supply shrinks, either by using it up or by political shrinkage which I think is the bigger shrinkage. Now, Saddam Hussein had a certain amount of power with oil, and he had a certain amount of power in even invading Kuwait. And there are very few nations who would have wished a piece of that pie. How many nations in the world can you think of who saw... Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi army taking over Kuwait, who would have dared intervene? Because of political repercussions over oil and dollars, because of not wanting to get embroiled in the Middle East and the military maneuverings there, because they might just get them, their fingers burnt. So most would not have gotten involved. He did according to his will and became great. Now, another thing Saddam Hussein did was decide that he would sell oil to Europe for euros. That had strong political and financial implications for the United States. Our government would not allow that. Now, a third way, and probably the strongest way, in which those countries are powerful today and can pretty much do their will and become great, is terrorism. There are a billion and a half Islamics on earth at last count. 
through suicide bombings, it's diminishing a little. But on the other hand, they're getting more and more converts daily. People are getting on the bandwagon. So actually, the suicides are probably adding to their numbers rather than detracting from their numbers. But there is a power there that is stronger than anyone can deal with. Look what happened on our own soil in New York and in Washington. Look what happened in London. Look what happened in Bali. Look what has happened in various places on the earth. And there are constant threats of more. How do you fight that enemy? Let's say there are a billion and a half of them scattered around the world. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, if not millions, right here in America today. Maybe with suitcase bombs already here. With various ways of affecting and inflicting damage on this people. Whether it be through germ warfare or bombs or various other means and methods that are available to terrorists today. We are not safe in this country. They are not safe in Britain. We have been fighting in Afghanistan now for years. We have been fighting in Iraq for years. And it does nothing but get worse, does it? They can go most anywhere they want on earth and do their suicide bombing thing, and there's no way to stop them. There's just no way. Are you going to lock up a billion and a half of them so they can't do it? How are you going to fight it? So there is great power in the Islamic world. Now, there are those who will tell you that that's just a few radicals. That's not what the prophecies about Ishmael say. God says Ishmael is a wild ass of a man. That's God's terminology. Now, true, there may be individuals here and there who are peacemakers and doves. And I would not say that that is not true. But the religion as a whole teaches and preaches the destruction of the West. The satanic empire. And most of them, on some level, believe that. So they are doing pretty much according to their will, and they have become great, powerful. And as I was considering, I'm thinking about this, you know, I saw it, I was thinking about it. Verse 5, Behold, an he-goat came from the west. Not from the east, not from the north, not from the south, but from the west. On the face of the whole earth, What nation has influence on the face of the whole earth today? The United States is the only one that could possibly fill that bill. And touch not the ground. So he saw this he-goat in the air. Not running on the ground like goats normally run, but in the air. How does America fight her battles today? Basically, through the air. We'll send some ground troops try to clean up the mess after, but in Iraq, it was done through the air. The ground troops have their hands full now, 
But the battle was won in the air. Touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So, this is a big-horned goat. A lot of power. A lot of influence. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him, or ran unto him, in the fury of his power. Did George Bush not give emotions of fury over what happened in New York and at the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania? Yes, he did. Was there collusion there and did he know it was coming? That is a different story and it is likely. But the public presentation was one of great fury and the reaction was one of great fury and great power. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, and smote the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hands." Now, if the line of thinking that I'm presenting at the moment is correct, one horn has been broken. Now, remember this ram had one horn and another came after that was bigger. I think that probably Iraq is the smaller of the two, and Iran comes up a little later and is the larger and is also smashed. Both horns go. Now, we are already, and have been for some time, making statements about Iran being part of the axis of evil. That goes back quite a way. And how it also must go under. Now, Iraq controlled a lot of oil, and Iran controls far more oil than Iraq. Therefore, and it is also a greater hotbed of terrorists than even Iraq. So, if anything, it is more powerful and more notable, and not only that, it probably does have, or soon will have, weapons of mass destruction which we could not find in Iraq. So there is certainly, I think, uh, potentially a lot more power there than Iraq ever thought of having. But if this line of thinking is correct, I think before too long, you will see the United States fly into Iran and conquer it as well. And successfully so, because that's what it says. There was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. Look at me. Look at what I did. Look at the power I now have. Because now that he-goat, the U.S., would have controlled the oil of Iraq, the oil of Iran. But that isn't the end of the story. They may go in with air power and conquer those two nations. But will they have conquered the Islamic world? Not on your life. Not even have really begun to. So, he waxed very great. And while he was strong... While, I think, is a better translation than when here. 
And while he was strong, the great horn was broken. So we go in, we take Iraq, we take Iran, we still have our troubles there, and we have our horn broken. And for it, or perhaps in place of it, we'll get down to verse 22, came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now, if the U.S. has its horn broken, its power, notice verse 22, uh, now that being broken, whereas four stood up, for it, for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in its, his or its power. So something is going to survive, it appears, but it will be an amalgamation of four somethings. I'm not here to try to explain that necessarily. Maybe a couple of thoughts. Recently, the Council on Foreign Relations recommended that within five years we remove the Canadian and Mexican borders. So they may try to amalgamate us with Canada and Mexico. Well, there's three. Uh, throwing Cuba's four, I don't know. I'm just, you know, uh, speculating here a little bit. Or maybe, if the U.S. is essentially destroyed, they will put, divide it into four pieces and put four governors there. I know the New World Order has already made it a part of their ten divisions that they want to make of the entire world. So, just how this comes out, I, I'm not prepared to say. But apparently, there's some kind of division, and the power no longer remains. However, this comes out. Now, verse 9. And out of one of them, out of the four notable ones that are governing, managing, or overseeing, or whatever this scenario is, out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great. Now, it wasn't big to start with. Just a little horn wasn't maybe something that you'd pay a whole lot of attention to until it begins to grow and become great. Pretty strong little horn. Toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Now notice the difference in direction here. Before we had this ram, which I think probably is Iraq and Iran, pushing westward, northward, and east and southward. Now, this little horn pushes a different direction. He pushes southward toward the east, not toward the west anymore, and toward the pleasant land, which is basically southwest of Shushan, if you go down to Israel. I think the pleasant land probably is a reference to what was originally called the promised land, or where Israel is today. So, this one, once he takes power, pushes toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Maybe he is at the north, I mean, is in the north, or does not push against the north, let's say Europe. But in, in the west, no longer is a factor. So, if he's in the north, the beast, or has an alliance... And Europe is trying to make an alliance with the Islamics today. Now, maybe they're smarter in one sense. Let's bring them in and make friends of them, because after all, there are a billion and a half of them. And wouldn't it be better if they were our friends rather than our enemies? 
So they're courting Turkey today, which is essentially Islamic. So the directions that this one points its power are different. Can you imagine the world without the United States being the primary power? We're coming to that soon. Now, it waxed great, verse 10, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground. This is speaking of people, really, not, uh, not angels or beings in heaven. And stamped upon them. We are a part of a host which is ruled, governed, overseen from heaven. We belong to the host of heaven. Yes, he magnified himself, even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So, one of the main focuses of this little horn that comes up out of the division of four that occurs if it's speaking of America, one of its main focuses is the church, the people of God. And it is given power over them. It destroys the sanctuary. Now, this may be referring to the time when the abomination is set and the church has to flee. That is, the faithful remnant of the church has to flee. We won't get into all that again at this point. I covered it in that last series. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said to that certain saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? How long will the church get stepped on, in other words? And he said to me, Two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now that could be... Mornings and evenings could be 2,300 days or it could be 1,150 days. Uh, possible, I suppose, to explain it both ways. We don't know for sure. Using a 360-day year, which we will have soon, this could amount to three years, 70 days. I'm not going to get into that and try to explain it at this point. That isn't the point that I'm coming to. It isn't what I'm after. It's just how long this will be and, and exactly how it will go. I want to lay the background for something else. And it came to pass, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So to this point, Daniel had seen these things, but he didn't understand what it was about. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. This wasn't something that was to be played out in Daniel's lifetime or right thereafter. It was something that would to be right at the end, which is where we are now. So the vision Daniel had at Shushan was for here and today. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. 
And he said, Behold, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. So these events have to do with what will happen right at the end. The rams which you saw, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Now we begin to see why he was taken in the vision to Shushan. It's right there on the dividing line between Iraq and Iran, in the middle of the Medo-Persian Empire, and at the capital of it. Now, they used Babylon as a secondary capital. They used uh, Persepolis as another. But Shushan was the main capital of the Persian Empire. So the setting for this end-time prophecy is the Middle East, and more specifically then, that area which was the capital of the Medes and Persians, which would be Iraq and Iran. The rams which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, is this speaking of Greece as we know Greece today? How big a power is Greece in this end time? How much power do you project Greece to have over the next few years? It's just a little island where people, or not an island, but it has islands, where people go for vacations and billionaires sail their yachts. It's a place where occasionally we have the Olympics. They had their birth there and in sun worship. The Olympics are just as bad as Christmas and Easter, even though some of God's people still watch the Olympics. They have the same origins, worship the same gods, and are no different. That's a sidebar. But Greece is basically, basically, what would you say, a Greece spot on the world today? No political power to speak of, no military power, no reason to become rich. Greece itself is nothing. Now, I explained this before, and I'll come over it again. And this may have some bearing on it. When your perspective is Israel and Jerusalem, the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, or Saudi Arabia, and so on, and you don't even know that South America and North America perhaps exist, although David and Solomon and others did, but it wasn't a part of their world. It wasn't a part of the power that they dealt with. It wasn't where there was any kingdom. It was a place way far away that had no bearing on the politics of the day. But to the west of the Middle East, the only real power that they had to deal with was Greece. So they referred to Greece as the West. Now, the rest of the world today, when we have the whole globe to consider, looks upon who or whom as the West. We are the West, the United States. Peripherally, Canada and Mexico, I guess, are the West. But in terms of politics, in terms of military, in terms of economics, all the things that count for this world, the United States and its culture is called the West. So God may have been using Greece to explain this to Daniel, and Daniel would have thought of Greece as the West. 
But God may have been, in this book which was closed in meaning, leaving something that only we in the end time could understand. The Greece, in that sense, as the West, was only a type of the West that would later come. I think that that is easy to understand in terms of Babylon. Babylon is in the fertile crescent of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And yet, on the other hand, I think we saw in that series of sermons that the United States today, in its culture and philosophy, depicts Babylon in a greater fashion than anyone on the earth today. And Babylon will fall, and Babylon will fall again. I believe the United States, as the leader of Babylon today, will fall. And then another leader of Babylon will appear in the form of a beast power and ten kings and so on. And it also will fall a few years later. So if we can extrapolate Babylon out of the Middle East and bring it here, we certainly can do that with Greece and bring it here. Okay? We have to look at this from the perspective of the way things are in the end time. I don't think those are going to change. I don't think Greece is suddenly going to become a great power that goes in and destroys Iraq and Iran or the medio persian Empire at the end. That just doesn't look possible. Now, where was I? So the rough goat is the king of Grecia, maybe referring in a larger sense to the United States today. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So this is something that, appears, uh, that happens over a period of time. One king and then another. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in the power that the nation had. Much diminished, not the same anymore. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Now, I think the transgressors here could be referring to those who are pushing the new world order from behind the scenes, who are transgressing the Constitution, who are transgressing every freedom and liberty we are supposed to have, and they will come to full power. They are inching their way into it. Or maybe it's by feet and yards now, not by inches like it was five, ten years ago. It's becoming more and more apparent. So when they're come to their full power, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences, I think this has to do with the occult, will stand up and his power shall be mighty but not by his own power. That is, I believe he will be given power by Satan the devil. You know, Revelation does talk about a religious order and the beast power along with it, and there will be great miracles done so that even fire could be called from heaven, and that's not from the power of God. That's from the prince of the power of the air. So his power will be mighty, but it won't be of himself. It won't be human power. It will be power given to him. And he shall destroy wonderfully or greatly and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. So this will come down to a battle between 
the holy people, the spiritual Jews, if you will, and the powers of Satan and his governments on this earth. That's what this is coming down to. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, great ego, and by peace shall destroy many. He's going to come in seemingly peaceful, but he will ultimately destroy many. So he does it craftily. He does it slyly. He does it subtly. But what happens to him eventually? He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. He will even try to stand up against God. That won't work. So he was told then that the evening, the vision of the evening and the morning is true. Wherefore, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And Daniel was faint-hearted and sick over the whole thing. Now, let's go back to the book of Esther. Because I think the book of Esther is not just a nice story about a queen and some Jews. There is far more here than immediately meets the eye. Right after Nehemiah sandwiched in there ten chapters of the little book of Esther. Now, they say that this was written between about 400 and 332 B.C., uh, probably around 400, as close as they can date it. In other words, about 60 years, roughly speaking, after the first Israelite or the first Jews left Babylon. So, remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah? and how they began to come out of Babylon after the 70 years of captivity. So we go on down the road. The Medo-Persian Empire is in charge, having destroyed the, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. And a few kings lived and died of the Persians. We won't go into all of that. But this is roughly 60 years downstream from the time that the first Jews left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. Well, that gives you the time setting. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Uh, the historians and archaeologists have determined to the best they can, and apparently fairly closely, that this is speaking of Ahasuerus III, and also is known in history as Xerxes. Even the Bible talks about Artaxerxes and Xerxes. Now, this man reigned approximately seven and a half years before he was killed in a conspiracy. I'll comment a little more on the seven and a half years later on here. Now, you may remember this story, the book of Esther, as there was a man in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians who hated Jews and tried to get all Jews killed, but Esther became queen and managed to influence the king, and the disaster and the killing of all those Jews was averted. It's a nice story. Let's get into it. Now, it came into the pass in the days of Ahasuerus, 
This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now, history says that he ruled over 20, 25, and 27. They can't agree exactly how many. But within those 20 to 27 that they can name as major provinces, there were smaller breakdowns. In other words, you might call the United States a province, but it has 50 smaller provinces within it. Uh, states, which have a certain sovereignty of their own. But at any rate, this was a big empire. When you consider from India on the far east all the way down to northern Africa, this man controlled all that area. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace. Hmm. Interesting. Edge of Iran near Iraq. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast to all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. So he held a huge conference with all those who had power there. So this must then have been a pretty important shenanigan going on, right? When you call in all those who have any power and political influence, it's a big deal. Why? Now, when he got them all there, what did he do? He showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days, 180 days, six months this conference went on. That's a big deal. Now, part of the reason for this was to impress them with his power and riches. When you are trying to impress someone with your power and riches, you must have something in mind for them to do. Now, profane history tells us that this assembly was to prepare for an invasion of, guess where? Greece. We just read about an invasion of Greece and the breaking of the notable horn of Greece in Daniel. And I've already made the illusion that that might be the United States in prophecy. We'll begin to make some connections here. That this may be more than just a nice little story about Esther saving some Jews. It may have a great deal to do with you and me. I don't see any of you asleep yet, so I'll throw that in, though. It could be you and me here. <laughs> so let's consider that and think about it as we develop this story. Now, this invasion that Ahasuerus was planning of Greece did occur, and he came home licking his wounds. It failed. Even after 180 days of planning and the uh, influencing of all these leaders to be with him, you know, he was building an alliance there is what he was doing, trying to get all the power of the entire kingdom 
assembled together so that they might destroy Greece. The Medes and Persians tried that and it didn't work. Now the Medes and Persians, if you will, Iraq and Iran today, are trying to destroy America. And Iraq has already been squashed. Iran, I believe, is about to be squashed by the West or an alliance of people with America. So his foray into Greece, the West, didn't work, nor is the one that is being mounted today by the Islamic world, particularly Iran and Iraq, going to work. They will have both their horns broken. However, Ahasuerus did not die there. His empire was not destroyed there. He just tried to fight the West and lost. The story does not end there. The Islamic world has come up against America, and Iraq has already gone under. Iran shortly will, but that doesn't mean the story has ended. Those are just the opening salvos. When, when rams and goats fight, it isn't usually just one or two licks. And we'll find more back and forth in Daniel 11, for instance. So it isn't over yet, even though you might have won that battle or lost that battle, you didn't lose the war. So I'm not trying to say that's the way this whole thing ends. We're not going there. What we're doing is seeing at the moment the parallel between Daniel 8 and the beginning of the book of Esther. And how, interestingly, the story is much the same. And it will develop more. Now, they'd had this 180-day conference, verse 5, and when these days were expired, the king made a feast to all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both under great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So they plotted and planned for 180 days, and he influenced them and got them all on his side to do this thing. So then once the plan was finished, he said, all right, let's party for seven days. The work's done. Let's celebrate. Then we'll go attack. So this happened in the garden of the king's palace where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Very sumptuous palace. I'm talking about beds here, but it's a poor translation. It really meant couches. When those people parted, they had, instead of tables and chairs like we might do, they had couches. Because when you get so full and so drunk, couches feel better than chairs. They liked their creature comforts then as we do now. Now, you and I might sit at a table and eat and then go lean back on the couch on Thanksgiving Day if we still eat too much. But they, they, they cut out a step. They just lay down on the couch and ate and drank. So they were comfortable all the way through. Very sumptuous. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, vessels being diverse from one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king, or according to the hand of the king. In other words, he provided the booze and the food. 
kind of party you might like. Now, before we go any further, I want to draw some possible analogies here. I'm not sure how all of them exactly fit. Um, just really got into studying this. But I see some things in here that we'll get to, and you might kind of have this in mind as we go, because it might help you understand or develop the story. There are some parallels and possibly some analogies. Let's consider the king here, Ahasuerus, possibly as God the Father. Mordecai as Jesus Christ. You know, if you're going to have a play or set a stage, uh, you got to know who the characters are. Haman, possibly as Satan the devil. Vashti, who was the, the queen when this whole thing started, the queen of Ahasuerus, as ancient Israel. And possibly Esther as the New Testament church. Now, those may or may not quite fit. I know the immediate objection would be, how could a pagan king be a type of God the Father? And yet, in some respects, was not Cyrus a type of Christ? He helped deliver the Jews, and ultimately Christ was the one who will deliver not only the Jews, but everyone. So in one sense, Cyrus was a type of Christ, in a, in a limited way. But if you're going to play these things out on a physical level with physical people, uh, these analogies might fit. Now let's look at it from an and-or standpoint of the king, rather than representing the Father in heaven, a friendly Gentile king, as Cyrus was. Look upon Haman as Tkach, Mordecai as some church leader perhaps, Vashti, the queen, as the worldwide church of God, and Esther as the chosen daughter of Zion. Now these may or not completely fit but I think they are certainly worth considering as we go on through this book, and I think you'll see why as we get there. Now, I'll comment at this point, again, about the length of the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. He lived, or reigned, apparently, seven and a half years. I read that in one Bible dictionary or commentary. I don't have the quote here. But notice in verse 3 of chapter 1, this began to transpire in the third year of his reign. He reigned seven and a half years. Now, the events that unfold here in a proclamation to kill all Jews occurred shortly after this conference. Now, if it began in the third year and it lasted 180 days plus seven, uh, you're getting somewhere near the fourth year of his reign when this ends. Now, the order to come out and kill all Jews happened on the 13th day of the first month, one day before Passover. Interesting timing. But the decree to kill all Jews, and it was to happen on a set day, it wasn't just from, this, from now on, let's get rid of Jews every time we see, you know, freeze the bag limit and 
uh, a day and no more than 14 in possession or something, like they do deer or grouse. It wasn't that way. A decree was made that they will be killed, but we're going to do it on the 12th month, 13th day. Eleven months later. Now remember, they only had horses back then to carry the mail. And this kingdom went from Ethiopia to India. So the king said, we're going to kill all the Jews, and we're going to do it on the 12th month, 13th day. That's when the season opens. That would put it near the end, probably, of the fourth year of Ahasuerus' reign, leaving him only three and a half years to reign. I find that to be a very interesting parallel, because I think, as we shall see, or at least consider, this book may be referring to the three and a half years of Great Tribulation. And ironically, it works out that it probably started the beginning of the fifth year of Ahasuerus' reign, so the fifth, sixth, seventh, and a half, you got three and a half years left from the time that the Jews were destined to be actually killed. Now, remember Daniel 8, in which when this little thing of the ram and the goat was finished, someone came up who began to do what? Destroy the spiritual Jews, the holy people. Everything's fitting very nicely so far. All right, let's go on. Verse 8, And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed all the officers of his house, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. There wasn't a rule on how much they could drink, just according to each individual, whatever he wanted. We have an open bar. Do what you wish. This, this was a celebration. Now, we get a fly in the ointment. Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the king was rubbing elbows with all of the political powers of his kingdom. And Vashti thought we should liberate the women to party as well. So she held a feast for the women. Now, I don't know that that was necessarily such a bad thing, except that it began to turn her head and the women's head from what the men thought their job was to be. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was happy, happy, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, <laughs> I'm glad we're just Bill and John and Joe, uh, Zethar and Carcass, how would you like to be named Carcass? The seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king. So he had these seven men, he commanded them, he said, bring Vashti in. Because he was deep in his cups, and he wanted to see the queen there. So he commanded to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal. 
You wonder how long they've been making that whiskey. To show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. So the king was happy and deep in his crown royal, and he wanted to see the king and the queen and show her off because she was a good-looking lady. He thought that it would be nice to bring her in. He had all of these satraps and politicians from all over the kingdom, and he wanted to brag a little bit about how his wife looked. Bring her in, he says. But the queen vastly refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Ooh-wee. Now we got problems. Now, I don't know exactly what transpired here. She may have known what was going on and says, I'm not going in there to let all those drunks ogle me. Or he's drunk, and I'm not going to pay any attention to what he says. That would be kind of a normal reaction, wouldn't it? Do I misread you girls? Would you want to go in with thousands of these people and have them look you over and all of them be drunk? I could understand her position to some degree here. But that's not the way it worked among the Medes and Persians. (coughs) So she said, I'm not going. Therefore was the king very angry and his anger burned in him. This made him mad down to his socks. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. The law of the Medes and the Persians could not be broken. Whatever the king said and wrote was done. didn't matter if you said, oh, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done that. It was already written. So let it be written, so let it be done. (coughs) And the next to him was Karshina and Shethar and so on, the seven princes of Persian media, which saw the king's face. I guess the media was there as well. <laughs> I wonder where that term came from. We call it the media today. Which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. So these were the head honchos, the cabinet, if you will. What shall we do to the queen Vashti according to the law because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. We sent word. She didn't do it. Now what do we do to her? And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen, queen has not done wrong to the king only. She didn't just insult the king here, he said, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king. He says, this insult goes from India to Ethiopia. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands and their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ashahurus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Now, did ancient Israel do what Christ wanted? Was she responsive? Did she lay in bed all tucked in in the Song of Songs when he knocked on the door and bid her? Did she go her own way? Did she despise the covenant of marriage that she had made with Christ? There's one analogy. 
What about worldwide church of God? If maybe Herbert Armstrong, in that sense, was the king, didn't he tell us that we were off the track, that we should get back on? A woman is represented as a church in the Bible and prophecies. Did not Christ, through Herbert Armstrong, say, Repent. We're off the track. Get back on it. Did we listen? Did we think he was talking to us? As the sermon was this morning, was he talking to Daryl? Or was he just talking to those Laodiceans? Whoever they might be. Did we heed the call from God and Jesus Christ through our human leader? We won't go into that. I think the answer is quite obvious. We'll see where this goes. Has the church despised its leadership both physically and spiritually? Ending with Christ, our husband-to-be, and our Father in heaven. He calls, we don't come. <clears throat> this could spread, verse 18. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If you can't control your wife, there won't be any controlling any woman in the kingdom, was the conclusion that he came to. If it please the king... Let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Do we not have a situation today where God has destroyed the former temple under Herbert Armstrong, the Church of God, and is now preparing to build a latter temple under different leadership. I won't comment further on that at this point. We'll get into it more later. Now, on a larger, in a larger sense, was not ancient Israel denied audience with God anymore. Did not Christ tell the Pharisees, the leaders of physical Israel at the time he was on this earth, I take the kingdom away from you and give it to someone you know not. So in a larger sense, speaking of the whole of physical Israel, we were denied further access to God. He turned his face away. He divorced her. Never again would she have audience with God in this age. Now, those of the church, not just physical Israel, but now let's talk about spiritual Jews. If they go into the tribulation, which this three and a half years, the last three and a half years of Ahasuerus' reign may picture, once you are left behind... If you pray to be worthy to escape and do not, 
Will you be cut off, essentially, from God? Now remember all the prophecies we've read where God has turned His face from the whole church right now and can't bear to look at it. But He has said He will turn His face to a faithful remnant and smile upon them and bless them. Those, I believe, are the ones who will go to the villages without walls and ultimately from there to the place of safety when those villages without walls known as Jerusalem in the end time of Zechariah 2 will be destroyed. Now, if God has turned His face back to that remnant, what about those who have not repented? Will He turn His face to them? I think not. So, the remnant that is left behind of worldwide church of God will be denied audience with God for that three and a half years. Now, as they repent as they perhaps give their lives as martyrs, maybe that will be acknowledged. Now, as an interesting sidebar to the book of Esther, God is not mentioned once in this book. Prayer, praise, any approach to God is not mentioned in this book. I think it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Why? Here is a very interesting comment written sometime by a man who was still living, and he wrote it in 1895. I took it from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. But I want to read this paragraph to you. Please don't go to sleep while I read, but it won't be long. Here's his comment on why God might not be mentioned in this book. The utter absence of the divine name in Esther has formed a difficulty even where it has not been argued or urged as an objection. He says, even among those who don't object to God's name not being in this book, it still creates a problem <coughs> that needs to be explained. But that is plainly part of some divine design. God did this on purpose, this man says. The same silence is strictly maintained throughout, not just about God's name, in regard to prayer, praise, and every approach toward God. That silence was an offense to the early Jews. They didn't like it that this book didn't have God's name in it or mention praise or prayer. For in the Septuagint additions to the book, there is profuse acknowledgement of God both in prayer and in praise. So even books that have been added to the Bible that were not canonized, I mean spurious ones, not the ones that are in the covers that we read today. But it must have struck the Jews of the time and the official custodians of the canonical books quite as painfully. They were canonizing the Bible. Ezra's finished it. And he says those Jews must have thought, this is strange. They didn't like it. And we can only explain the admission of Esther by the latter on the ground that there was overwhelming evidence of its divine origin and authority. In other words, the Jews, in canonizing the Bible, wouldn't have put Esther in there unless there was compelling evidence it ought to be there because they were highly offended that it didn't mention God. So it was a case of 
it being so obvious Esther had to be in the Bible that they couldn't find a way to get rid of Esther. Okay? Can this rigid suppression be explained? In the original arrangement of the Old Testament canonical books, the present Hebrew arrangement is post-Christian, he says, Esther is joined to Nehemiah. The palace at Shushan is mentioned in Nehemiah 1.1. And the story in Nehemiah and Ezra is very interesting. Uh, they say that Esther fits in Ezra 6 and 7. And we'll probably go there before I'm done with this. What time is it? See, we started on the half hour. I've got a little time left. It is very obvious I will not make it through all of this today. <clears throat> But there is a connection between Nehemiah and Esther. Remember this, and, and, and Ezra and Esther. Remember, this is only 60, 60 years, more or less, down the road from the time those events happened. So they're close together in history. And I think that we have all seen the uh, connection between Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah in the end-time church. That is so clear. We've been through that. And we see the connection between those and us, even though it is a matter of history. So Esther also has to be in there. It can't be denied as a cute story. Anyway, going on. In 1895, I made a suggestion which I still think worthy of consideration. And I think not only in 1895, but 2005, what he has to say next deserves some consideration. More than 60 years had passed since Cyrus had given the Jews permission to return. The vast majority of the people remained, nevertheless, where they were. Now, we've gone over that. Most of the Jews stayed in Babylon. They stayed in wherever they had been taken captive. Some, like Nehemiah, were restrained by official and other ties. In other words, they were not allowed to go. The Jews as a whole were allowed, but some had to stay, were told to. But notice the next point. The rest, those which were not restrained politically, the rest were indifferent or declined to make the necessary sacrifices of property and of rest. Our home is here. Our job is here. Our family's here. We're not going. We've seen very clearly in the prophecies that only a 10% remnant will be faithful and willing to be stirred to action and to come and work in the latter temple. The rest will be unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices of property and so on. With such as these last... This 90% remnant today, and it was a 90% then, roughly. Let's think of both as we read this. The rest were indifferent or declined. With such as these last, the history of God's work in the earth can never be associated. Those who, for whatever reason, 
choose to continue their lives and are not willing to sacrifice lands, homes, family, whatever, and come and work in the latter temple, can never be associated with the history of God's work in the earth. I think that is a very revealing statement. Now, some of them may repent and be part of the kingdom of God, as Zechariah shows that perhaps 30% will repent during the tribulation. But they will not be a part of the work. They will be forced to work on the Sabbath or die. They will be forced to deny God's holy days or die. So they won't be part of the work. If they choose God, they will die and not be part of the work. If they choose to go along with the beast, they will die and not be part of the work. This man is making a very clear statement with very little understanding of the end time events. He made this in 1895. Before you and I were born or perhaps even thought of. And yet we find it true today as we approach the end. One more sentence. In his providence, in his sovereignty and the rulership of God, in his providence he will watch over and deliver them, but their names and his will not be bound together in the record of the labor and the waiting for the earth's salvation. Do you want to be a part of the end time work? And mentioned in connection with it, as part of the faithful remnant in the latter temple? Or would you rather not sacrifice, do your own thing, repent at the last second, and not be named among those who worked? You know, those who worked and worked hard in Paul's day, he mentioned at the end of various books. Remember so-and-so who worked so hard, Remember darkness, remember this one, remember that one, who labored with me. Now God will remember those who labor with him and put forth their hand to finish the work. And by the work, I mean the building of the latter temple, and I mean the final work of warning the world in the three and a half years, which this is probably referring to, and it can and will all fit together. I think that's a good place to stop for today. The second service of the day, and we're tired. So I'll stop there, even though it's not quite down to the time. And God willing, I'll pick that up next time I speak. So, as a parting thought, please keep... Uh, the family of Billy Holmes in mind uh, and their grief and uh, distraught loss of a husband and father and grandfather. And I'll be leaving shortly after sundown to go to Vegas to catch the red eye down there and look forward to seeing them early tomorrow morning. And the funeral is scheduled for late tomorrow afternoon. So 
please keep them in mind, and uh, God willing, we'll see you in a few days.